My name is Herb Montgomery, and I'm the director of Renewed Heart Ministries. We are a not-for-profit group that is passionate about rediscovering, following, and helping others rediscover the teachings and sayings of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. We believe that these teachings have an intrinsic value in informing the work of nonviolently confronting, liberating, and transforming our world into a safe, more just, more compassionate home for us all. If you would like to support the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, I'll tell you how you can do so at the end of this podcast. For now, we simply want to thank you for listening. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to this week's weekly podcast. This is episode 191 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast, and our title this week is The One Not With Me. Our feature text is Sayings Gospel Q 11.23, The One Not With Me is Against Me, and The One Not Gathering With Me Scatters. Our companion text are Matthew 12.30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters, and Luke 11. 1123, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So to begin this week, I have three words for us to keep in mind as we consider this week's saying, and that's context, context, context. Anyone taking this passage out of its context in Q, Matthew, or Luke, and applying it to just any cause or work that they may be involved with is overreaching, and I think a little, it's assuming too much uh, of themselves, their work, and the actions and attitudes of others. We almost, we also have to add uh, uh, to this discussion this week what this saying might mean for non-Christian, a non-Christian humanist to hear Jesus and the Christians who speak for him now say, you're either with me or against me. And, And I think it's a mistake. For Christians to characterize non-Christians as necessarily being uh, against Jesus just because they may disagree on the subjects of cosmology or ontology or religion and practice, and this may sound a little out of step, actually a lot out of step with what has been typical of, of Christians throughout history, but I don't believe one has to embrace a first century worldview as Jesus had to find much in Jesus' teachings from his own time and place that can inform our work in, in, in our own context today. Christians and non-Christians alike are working toward humanity's survival, holistic ways of, of resisting oppression, and, and liberation of those who are being subjugated and marginalized, and, and concrete material restoration of and reparation toward peoples who have system, systemically had uh, everything taken from them, and the transformation of our world into a, a safer, more just, uh, compassionate world for us all, and, and, and for a history of how secularists and certain tolerant believers have worked together in pioneering societal reforms in America's past. Um, a great book that you may want to check out is Susan Jacoby's Free Thinkers, A History of American Secularism. But a person may find that their own goals and even their methods have much in common with the Jewish Jesus of long ago, and yet they may not answer the, the larger, more philosophical and religious questions the way many Christians around them do today. So I think it would be very sad for Christians and non-Christians both to hear this week's saying in an excluding religious context 
rather than a, a societally transformative, liberating one. So is there any context in which the above statement could be a true statement? And I want to offer just such an example. On, on April 16, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. penned the now famous letter from Birmingham jail. And this letter was written after King had been jailed in response to the Birmingham campaign, which had begun on April 3, 1963. The Birmingham campaign was a, um, it was a, a series of marches and sit-ins in Birmingham, Alabama. And on April 10, a circuit judge in Birmingham, Jenkins, he ordered all parading, demonstrating, boycotting, trespassing, and picketing to be illegal. And in the spirit of nonviolent non-cooperation and, and, and resistance, uh, King and, and other leaders of the campaign, they refused to obey. King was arrested uh, along with Ralph Abernathy and, and Fred Shuttlesworth on the 12th of April that year. So in Ryder's Gospel of Freedom, in the chapter titled Meet Me in Galilee, Ryder states King was placed alone in a dark cell with no mattress and denied a phone call was Connor's aim, as some thought, to break him. Uh, and also on April 12th, the day that King was arrested, a call for, for unity was published in a, a local newspaper by eight white Alabama clergymen against King and his methods. And the letter from Birmingham jail is King's uh, response. And, and while the whole letter, I think, is very much worth your contemplation, there there is a, a section that's applicable to this week's saying. And then I'm going to read it for you. I usually don't read this much in a podcast, but this is worth it. King wrote, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers, neg prefers negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in, your, in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with you your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. In this context, it would be perfectly appropriate for King to say, the one who's not with me is against me. And remember, in the context of our saying this week, Jesus is being accused of being evil while all along he's actually engaged in the work of liberation for the oppressed. And remember that that, that language comes from Luke 4, 18 through 19. And he, he's just been accused of being a conduit of Beelzebul, and his work uh, of ending the suffering for, for so many is being labeled as dangerous and of the Satan in an effort to prevent their position of power and privilege within their society from being threatened. And this would have been perfectly appropriate, a perfectly appropriate context for a first century Jewish liberation rabbi of the people uh, to make the above statement. So, so today I hear comments such as, uh, I simply want to stay neutral. I don't, I don't want to take sides. And, and certainly there are cases where that would be acceptable. But in, in the case of oppression, where the status quo empowers injustice, 
neutrality is taking a side. It, it's taking the side of oppression. Robert McAfee Brown, in his book, Unexpected uh, News, Reading the Bible with Third World Eyes, he quotes Desmond Tutu as saying, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. That's from page 19. But Tutu's statement also reminds me, I think, of the title of Howard Zinn's 2002 book, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, A Personal History of Our Times. And we fail to realize that neutrality really is an illusion when one is already complicit and benefiting from systems of injustice. Jesus, in this week's saying, is forcing those in possessions of power and privilege to actively pick a side. And the deception that one can stay neutral in matters of injustice uh, that it, that's a lie. Matthew, Luke, and Q, and all three texts, this statement comes in the context of Jesus's efforts towards the liberation of the oppressed within his society and how the religious leaders of his day claimed that he was actually, actually an agency of evil. And as I wrote two weeks ago, it's one thing to be deceived and mistake something evil to be something good. It's an entirely different matter to be threatened by a change for good accuse it of being evil and of the devil, and fight against it to keep it from influencing your world in spite of how much suffering it would end for so many. And from a desire to preserve the status quo, the same dynamic has been repeated over and over again, especially within the history of, of a very vocal sectors of Christians here in, in America. And I want to emphasize that this is only within sectors of Christianity. Those Christians who are typically in position of societal power and privilege, they're the ones we see this dynamic repeated in. An example is in the white Bible Belt of the South. White Christianity fought hard against the civil rights movement. And Christian schools uh, began began their history, their, their history is rooted in an attempt at beginning education in the South uh, as an alternative educational choice to, to avoid having to embrace integration. The history of Christian education in the South is deeply mired in attempts by white Christians to not have to have their white children going to school alongside black children. And the black Christian tradition, on the other hand, uh, was on the receiving end of this bigotry. So I want to be careful to state, typically in prominent sectors of Christianity, specifically sectors where we find those who are in positions of power and benefit, it's these sectors that we've witnessed this dynamic uh, most often. And whether it be white Christians resisting social change for black lives, uh, whether it be male Christians, both black and white, resisting social change for women, let's say, or, or white female Christians resisting change for black men and, and black women, um, upper-class Christians resisting change for lower econo economic classes, um, or, or straight cisgender Christians resisting change for those whose sexuality is fluid and who identify as being gender nonconforming. This history has been repeated over and over again. And over the past few months, uh, I, again, have been overwhelmed with, with white Christian critiques of, of Colin Kaepernick's justified protest. Uh, I, I was aghast at the white voices which have spoken out against him. Just shocked. I've also been amazed by the white voices which have not been speaking out against Kaepernick, but 
but have remained silent nonetheless in the wake of police brutality and the two recent occurrences that are in my mind as as I'm recording this this week, um, the killings of Keith Lamont Scott and Terrence Crutcher, uh, the silence is compounded by the fact that these same white voices, they finally did speak out, but they finally chose... (laughs) They, they, they chose to put their voice to something that did concern them deeply, and they chose to voice their disapproval of the property being damaged in protests such as in Charlotte, North Carolina. Where are the voices of white Christians to speak out against the futility that, that many lives face as a result of the way we are presently structuring and policing our society? And we, 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 we desire to follow a Jesus who placed people above property, yet our silence regarding the destruction of black lives, which is broken only when property is destroyed, betrays a priority of concern regarding property over a concern regarding people. And this would have been wholly unrecognizable by the Jesus that we desired to follow. Another example, at least in the sectors of Christianity that I typically find myself surrounded by, and again, I'm a white, straight, cisgender male, uh, I wish I had a dime for every time I've been told about the evils of the U.S. Supreme Court finally recognizing the validity of same-sex marriages. And I'll admit that these statements are are usually made to me by Christians who, who don't know me and aren't familiar with my journey over the past four years. But but what is also standard is that these comments are typically made within the context of gross ignorance of the actual injustice and suffering uh, that this recognition uh, seeks to bring to an end for so many. They come from a demographic, for me, from folks who, who don't have a sweet clue what it's like to live on this planet as anyone other than a person just like themselves. They haven't stopped to listen to, to what it's like to experience life for those that they have in their hearts, minds, and speech, and actions uh, that they've othered. This is why typically among Christians, the ones who who have a, a change of perspective are the very ones who have a close friend or family member who muster up the courage within that environment to come out. And again, it's it's one thing to be deceived and mistake something that is actually evil to be something good. We've all made that mistake. But it's an entirely different matter to be threatened by a change for good and accuse it of being evil and of the devil and fight against it to keep it from influencing your world in spite of how much suffering it would end for so, so many. So it's in contexts such as these that even moderate neutrality is opposition. It's in contexts like these that, that one's silence is complicity. It's in contexts such as these that, that calls for nonviolence are themselves violent. And it is in contexts such as these that, that calls for unity are, are simply their veiled attempts at maintaining a status quo. So it's in contexts like these that one could justly and rightly say, the one who is not with me is against me, and the one not gathering with me scatters. Sayings Gospel Q 1123. Heart group application this week. If you're still with me this week, I want you to, number one, as a group, together sit down and read aloud both the public statement by eight Uh, Alabama clergyman entitled A Call for Unity, and then read it side by side with King's response, a letter from Birmingham Jail. Read both of them together. Number two, what lessons can you learn from contrasting and comparing these two letters about how societal justice is accomplished in our communities and the characteristics, uh, as well as the rhetoric, 
of the pushback that these efforts are met with and list at least three. And then number three, what are the parallels between a call for unity and much of the critiques and pushback we are witnessing in our in our time today in response to, to movements of varied types and concerns uh, that are engaged in the work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation, interdependently working toward uh, making our world a safer, more just, more compassionate home for all of us. And I remember the first time that, that I read A Call for Unity. It, it taught me how to recognize when these tactics uh, repeatedly show up again. And for some of you, like me, this will be review. But for others of you, you're about to experience a paradigm shift. And I'm, I'm so excited for you this week. Thank you again for checking in with us. Wherever uh, you find yourself right now, choose a life of love till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Thank you once again for listening. Everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries, even our our many educational events that we do in various venues, is for free. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-time gift or become one of our monthly contributors by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the Donate tab on the top right. Or you can mail your contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And make sure you also sign up for our free resources and Remember, every little bit helps. And and as always, anything that we receive over and above our annual budget, we happily give away to other not-for-profits who are are making both systemic and personal differences and significant differences in the lives of those who are not presently benefited by the status quo. And to those of you who are already supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, thank you so much. Your generous support makes it possible for us to exist and to continue being a presence for positive change in our world. So with all of our hearts, thank you. Together, we are making a difference till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns.